Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 through 35. I'm going to read for us. Uh, This is the passage that we'll be hearing about today. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. And this is God's word. That's a tough, that's a tough word. It's a tough passage. Uh, past month, we've been looking at Jacob. Jacob's life completely blown up. I mean, he, his life, he's estranged from his family, estranged from his father, his mother, estranged from his brother who actually wants to kill him because of what he's done. And so he leaves home. And he's got nothing. He's got no family. He's got no friends. He's got no money, no assets. And so he ends up, because of his mother's counsel, he ends up at his uncle Laban's estate, and uh, that's where we are today. Um, we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the context of the narrative. And then we're going to look at two overarching lessons, sets of lessons that we gain from this narrative. One about sin, the other about grace. So we're going to look at the context of the narrative. Then we're going to look at lessons, overarching lessons that we learn about sin, and then overarching lessons about grace. First, we're going to look at the context. Chapter 29 opens up. Jacob has been working now with his uncle for about a month. 
And uh, his uncle must have realized, Jacob's a good worker. He, he could help him expand his business, his assets. So he asks Jacob, what can I do to keep you here with me, to keep you here? And Jacob responds, I want your daughter, Rachel. Now think about this. How does Jacob deal with the hurts and the brokenness in his life, the loneliness and the emptiness in his life? He says, I know what I need. I need a woman in my life. I, that's what's going to cure me of my loneliness. And so he says, I'm willing to work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And the wording here, seven years, right, younger daughter, Rachel, that's what you call stipulations. That's what you would expect in an ancient marital contract. Now, keep in mind, Jacob's got no assets. He's got nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table. He's got no assets, no wealth, no inheritance. So he needs to somehow translate an offer of a bride price, which was very customary in ancient times, right, for lots of reasons, whether it's insuring, insurance, death, lots of, lots of reasons. He, he's trying to translate this bride price into labor, and he carefully stipulates, I will work seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. Laban's got two daughters. Verse 17, we learn that Leah is the older daughter. She's the elder. She's got weak eyes. That's what the text says. Literally, if you actually look in the Greek, you can, it's a play on words. It, it may be translated weak. That's actually a minor translation. It's actually, she's got soft eyes. She's got tender eyes. The translators took some liberty to translate the word to mean weak, basically because of the context of this passage. But essentially what we see is that Leah's eyes are weak, Rachel is lovely in form and beautiful. Now, the text doesn't say Leah's got weak eyes, but Rachel's got great vision, right? It doesn't say that. Either Leah's eyes were her one good asset. She's got soft, tender eyes, but the rest of her, not very lovely. Not very, she's not, you know, she's not sexually desirable. Or something about Leah's eyes rendered her to be weaker in form and beauty. Disfigured her, maybe. Less desirable. Regardless, Rachel was the sexually desirable one. And so Laban realizes... That through Jacob, he can expand his business on one hand and marry off both of his daughters. He's a very shrewd businessman. And so the text says Jacob worked for seven years. But those seven years felt only like a few days. Then he says, give me my wife. But Laban deceives Jacob. Because on the wedding night, everyone's drinking. Uh, It's late. There's no electricity back then. So once it turns dark, it's dark. It's pitch black, and it's customary for your wife to be veiled the entire day, throughout the day, until she comes to the marriage bed. And now Jacob's in bed, no electricity, completely dark. He's expecting Rachel, but Leah takes her place, and he sleeps with Leah. And verse 25, he wakes up, and in the morning, there's Leah. Behold, there's Leah. And so Jacob confronts Laban, but he wanted Rachel so bad that he commits another seven years, and he gets Rachel's hand in marriage. And now we have Leah, who's exploited, Leah, who's disregarded, completely overlooked and used by the father, used by the husband in a sense. Her heart is broken, but Leah can have children, 
And so she says, this is the way that I'm going to win Jacob back into my life. I'm going to bear him sons. I'm going to bear him children. And so she starts popping him out, right? That's what she does, right? Each child born to her represents the depths of her emptiness and loneliness and desperation. You got Jacob empty and lonely and desperate. And so she, he's just working and working and working to find that one thing that's going to cure his soul. And now you got Leah who's empty and lonely and desperate. And she's going to do the one thing that she can do to cure her desperation and the loneliness in her soul. In verse 32, she has Reuben. Now I'm seen. Verse 33, it's Simeon. Now I'm being heard. Now I will be heard. Verse 34, Levi. Now my husband will be attached to me. Now he's going to see me. Now he's going to hear me. Now he's going to be attached to me. Now I will be loved. But she's not. She's not. Then verse 35, she has a fourth child, Judah. Now I will praise the Lord. Lots of lessons here. That's the context. Lots of lessons here about sin and about grace. First, we're going to look at overarching lessons about sin. You're going to have to brace yourself. There's quite a few, okay? First lesson about sin. Sin is a power. Sin is a power. Look at Jacob, verse 18. Just captivated by Rachel, smitten by Rachel, taken by Rachel completely. Verse 18, I'm willing to work seven years. Which really what he's saying is, I'm willing to do anything that it takes, whatever it takes, Historical research has shown that the normal amount of money, the normal price that a man is willing to pay to the family of a bride in these ancient times for their hand in marriage is a little bit less than or up to about 50 shekels, right? And you don't need to know what that translates into, 50 shekels. Uh, basically, in context, if a typical shepherd, which is what Jacob did, if, he, if a typical shepherd made about 10 shekels a year, if you do the math, He's offering about five years' worth. That's the typical bride price would be about five years' worth of labor. What's Jacob doing? He's offering seven. Why? Because he's trying to sweeten the offer. He's got nothing to bring to the table, so he needs to sweeten the offer because he's got absolutely nothing. And so he makes Laban an offer that he cannot refuse. He needs this, he says. Sin is more than an act. That's the first lesson. It's more than an act. It's a captivating power. It controls you. It shapes you. It moves you. And eventually corrodes you, ruins you, destroys you. Destroys everything else around you. William Shakespeare, prominent author, if you've ever heard of him, William Shakespeare, um, he wrote comedies and tragedies. The themes of his tragedies primarily revolved around the truth, the reality, that sin is a corroding force that is contagious. Because we are sinful by nature, everybody around us gets impacted by our sin. It is a captivating power that will destroy the one who is sinful and all the people around him who are also sinful, ultimately until the entire, basically Shakespeare's view and his outlook was that until all who are sinful are lost forever, until they are dead. That's, what, that's the power of sin. And what that means is if you see things about your friends that are even the seedlings of evil, no one knows better than your friends, more so than your parents. Your parents may know generally because of your patterns, but your friends will see things about you. You know what a good friend is? It's someone who sees 
the reality of who you are. And no matter what that may do to your relationship with that person, no matter what that may do to make you feel, that they are willing to call it out because they are the best people positioned to call it out. If you see something about your friends that are the seedlings of evil, look, you got you to call it out. You know why? Because no one outgrows sin. No one outpaces sin. No one outraces sin. Sin is undefeated in that sense. You see, you can't just stop it on your own. It's going to trap you. It's going to own you. It will destroy you. The second thing we learn, sin is a compulsion. Jacob worked seven years. Verse 20, it seemed only like a few days because of his love for Rachel. And when those seven years are up, Jacob says, verse 21, give me my wife. My time is completed. I've done my time. I want to lie with her, right? Now, I'm going to reinterpret that, all right? Seven years are up. Jacob goes to Laban. It's over. I'm done. Give me my wife. I want to have sex now. That's what he's saying. Look at that language. Now, this is ancient, this is ancient rhetoric. This is ancient language. Much more proper, especially a younger to an elder. Right? What would compel a man to go to an elder and use inappropriate crass language, the boldness of that crassness, and basically say, I want this right now. I'm demanding this. You never did that in ancient times. Right? It's disrespectful. It's inappropriate. You wouldn't do that now, hopefully. Right? Why? Why would you do it? Jacob is addicted. Jacob is just blind and rabid with compulsion for Rachel. It's all he's wanted. It's all he's thought about for seven years. It's all he wants. There are people in this room right now that are impulsively and compulsively giving up the sacred parts, the best years of their lives. You're probably in relationships that you shouldn't be in. You're probably looking for relationships that you probably shouldn't be looking for. You're probably giving yourself in a relationship that you shouldn't be giving, the sacred, the best parts of who you are, because you're so desperate. We're so desperate for love and intimacy and approval and acceptance. We just can't, we can't help ourselves. We're compelled. We can't help ourselves. Thirdly, sin is idolatry because of the power, because of the, the blindness and the compulsion. Jacob needs Rachel. Why? Why does he need Rachel? Why does he work seven years for Rachel? Seven is the perfect number. Jacob's saying is this. What Jacob's saying is this. This is the thing that's going to make it right for me. My life's a mess. I have nothing. If I have this thing, this broken life of mine, this broke, I can finally piece together something to make my life better. That's why he needs Rachel. Rachel's going to fix his life. Rachel's going to cure him. Jacob's thinking, my life's a mess. I've lost my father. I've lost my mother. I've lost my brother. I've lost my home. I've lost my, my clan. I've lost my wealth. Nothing, I have nothing in this world that I own. This is the blessing? This is the promise? What's going to fix my brokenness? Ah, Rachel. Rachel's going to fix it. Rachel is beautiful. Rachel is stunning. If Rachel will marry a man like me, I must be worthy. I will feel worthy. No matter what I've got, no matter what I don't have, if I can show people, Rachel, 
then people will know that I have something. Then people will know that I have worth. Now, remember, Jacob was willing to lie to get everything that he wanted. This is finally, I have something pure that I can earn, that I'm willing to work hard for. Rachel will cure my emptiness and my desperation and my loneliness. In other words, Rachel will save him. And whenever you have something that's apart from God that you look to that can cure you of your emptiness and loneliness and desperation, whenever you have uh, something apart from God that you look to as your source of worth, as your source of wealth, the Bible interprets that, defines that to be an idol. The madness of idolatry is that it blinds you. It distorts your vision. Things that are not real become real to you. Things that uh, you start, you, you're unable, you become very myopic, and you, you th- you're supposed to see real reality in your relationship with the Father, with God, but you actually just see visible reality, and that visible reality becomes your real reality. It starts to distort your view of things. You become blind, you become myopic, you see? And because of that power and compulsion, you start to need things that were never meant to take the place of God in your life. It's idolatry. Fourth thing, sin is deafness. There's a deafness. Laban, look at Laban. He smells blood. He says, I got him. I see the desperation. This is a guy who would be willing to do anything. And so if you look at Laban's response to Jacob's proposal, I'll work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel, he doesn't really respond. What he says is, well, I mean, I might as well give her to you than some other dude, right? That's pretty much what he says, right? Uh, he doesn't say, yes, we got a deal. He doesn't say that. He never says that. Jacob assumes that. He's so taken, he's going to hear what he wants to hear. I'm a pastor, friends. There are people come to me for advice all the time, stuff that I have no business giving them counsel over, right? And I've had people come to me about sermons that have nothing to do with what they're thinking about. Well, I mean, I guess every sermon is applicable. They'll come to me and they say, hey, uh, based on this sermon, you know, I believe the Lord is leading me to such and such. And I tell them, hey, actually, this passage is challenging why you want that so badly. Aside from the fact that you're grossly misinterpreting what the passage is saying, you're grossly interpreting it's counsel. And so, and they'll say, oh, so you're saying I should go for it. <laughs> you know, it really happens. It happens at least once a week, okay? It happens all the time, right? It's because we hear there's a deafness that sets in. There's a deafness that sets in. When the seven years up are up, Jacob is now alone in the dark. You see this darkness theme that's running through the, the, the life of Jacob? You know, everything happens in the dark, right? In the blindness. So that's a theme that, runs through this if you're, if you're looking into the text more. Jacob is sleeping with who he thinks is Rachel when he wakes up the next morning. Verse 25, it's Leah. Notice in verse 25, Jacob says, what is this you have done? I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? What's Laban's response? It's not a custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. In other words, Laban's saying this, Jacob, I don't know about your life, But in our world, we don't put the younger first. We don't put the younger 
before the older. We don't steal what belongs to the older one and give it to the younger one first. Ouch. Jacob is just broke. He just cut open, right? Sin makes us blind. Sin makes us rabid, overcome with power, overcome by power, overcome by its controlling power in your life. And then what it does is it makes you deaf. And then it makes you mute. Jacob, what does he say? He can't respond. You know why he can't? He could have taken him to court. I mean, he could have brought some sort of charge. There was a deception there. But he doesn't. Why? You know why? Because he needs Rachel. He's trapped now. That spiral. He needs Rachel. He could lose Rachel and get what he deserves in a sense, but he would lose the family. He would lose Rachel, and he knows he can't do that, and so he can't respond. It clicks for Jacob. Why doesn't he fight? It clicks for Jacob that he got played the exact same way that he played his own father. Right? In the dark. He couldn't see. Switcheroo. Right? The word deceived here um, is, the, is the same word, you know, you deceived me, Laban. The word deceived here is the same word that Isaac used when he said, I was deceived. He deceived me. Robert Alter, he's a uh, professor at Berkeley uh, University. Um, he's a liberal a theologian, but an expert, one of the foremost experts in ancient Hebrew. Uh, he quotes this old story from the Hebrew Midrash, a commentator in the book of Genesis uh, in, in one of the Hebrew teachings. And uh, I thought it was awesome, so I'm just going to read this to you. He, he, his teaching, the teaching imagines Jacob saying this. We don't know if that was really what was said, um, but he at least imagines this. Why did, he's talking to me, why did you deceive me, daughter of a deceiver? I mean, didn't I call out Rachel in the night? And you answered me. And Leah responds, there is never a bad barber who doesn't have disciples. Isn't this how your father cried out Esau and you answered him? Wow. Sin results in deafness. The fifth thing is that because of the blindness and the compulsion and the, and the deafness, it results in labor work, suffering, and, and labor. Why? Why the number seven? The number seven, why the seven years? Because this is what's going to make my life good again. This is what's going to make my life right. This is what's going to give me peace in life. Because of the power of sin, because of the compulsion of sin, because of the idolatry of sin, because of the blindness of sin, because of the deafness of sin, I am willing to do anything for the things that give me worth. In any given moment, it's compulsion. It's not like you sit there and like, well, this could be this, and I'm going to choose the bad way. That's not what we do. We just go. Isn't it how it works? We just go. Later on, we're like, why did I do that? Oh, my gosh, it's so obvious. But when we're in it, we just go. The seven years only seemed like a few days. The, the translation, the actual literal translation, it only seemed like a little while. It's the same phrase that Jacob's mother, Rebecca, in chapter 27, when Jacob was going to do the deed and steal the blessing in the first place, his mother tells him, I want you to stay with Laban a little while. In other words, it'll blow over, just a few days. Friends, he was gone forever. 
It was a lifetime. Sin leads to, it comes with a promise. It comes with a promise, but it leads to an endless amount of work for that thing that's going to give you a sense of worth. It's going to make you grovel. It's going to make you desperate. Some of us are so compelled. I mean, in a place where people are educated, where status is a premium in its culture, there are people, then there's no doubt that we are often taken by externals. There are people here so compelled, so taken by externals, that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want. You're going to work. And you think you're being subtle, but you're not. Because I know it looks like you're not trying, right? Um, You're doing things to make it look like you're not trying. But what's actually visible is the compulsion and the blindness and the deafness, the power. That's what's visible. Sin is labor. Lastly, because of the labor, sin leads to brokenness, a a tremendous amount of brokenness. Verse 25, behold, when morning came, there was Leah. Now, Derek Kidner, he's a great, one of my favorite commentators in the book of Genesis. And he says this. He writes, those words, behold, when morning came, there was Leah. Those words are the very embodiment of anticlimax. And that moment, this moment, is a miniature of man's delusion experienced from Eden onwards. What does that mean? I'm going to sum it up with two words that come from Tim Keller. You know, he just, has, he just says it so beautifully. He sums it up. Everything you just heard right now, you're like, what does he mean? Tim Keller sums it up in two words. That thing that you pursue, that thing that you are so desperate for to cure you of your emptiness and, and, uh, and sense of worthlessness always leads to cosmic disappointment. Love that phrase, cosmic disappointment. That means that no matter where you place your hope, whether it's in your spouse in your love partner, in your, in your career, in your sexual relationships, in your reputation, in your wealth, in your children. In the morning, there will always be Leah. There will always be Leah. Cosmic disappointment be, always begins with a promise. You will become a somebody if you have this. You will look like a somebody. You will become acceptable through this. You will have the approval of others through this. It comes with a promise. You will have a sense of worth. But in the morning... There will always be Leah. The Bible says we are constantly elevating things in our lives to a cosmic level, something that only God can give, something only God can ultimately award. Whatever it is you think you're getting Rachel, you will always end up with Leah if it's apart from God. Jacob is lost. Jacob is just absolutely, he's just suffering. And he looks at Leah. Actually, if you look at Leah, uh, you know, Leah's thinking, if I can just find that one person, my father clearly views me as lower. Uh, he's thinking, what am I going to do with, you know, my family? I can't marry off my older daughter. What am I going to do? Right? She's probably hearing that over and over, and just her sense of worth just broken all her life. Right? Um, if I can find that one man who will love me, then I'll be a somebody. That's what's going to fix me. But verses 28 to 30, what do you see? Leah is just devastated because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. She got what she wanted. 
She even got what she, well, many of us, the issue is not that we couldn't get what we wanted, although that leads to brokenness too, because you're going to work and work and work, and you end up not getting what you wanted. But what, sometimes the price you pay to get there and the reward or return on that investment is very, very shallow. Very, very shallow. I mean, I could give you tons of anecdotes and stories about that, right? But you know that. Very, very shallow. You probably heard it. It's just that we're deaf because of sin. Leah is just devastated because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Cosmic disappointment. The thing that was going to cure her loneliness made her more lonely. The cure that was going to the cure that was going to heal her of her emptiness is going to make her more empty in the end. And that's how it always works. Each son, each son that is given a Hebrew name that gives us a picture of Leah's brokenness. Leah thought that having sons was going to increase her potential and options and freedom and joy and peace. Jacob thought that if I could just have that one person who will love me, it will increase my potential and options and freedom and joy and peace. But in both cases, it ends up decreasing their potential and options and freedom and joy and peace. There was always Leah in the end. In the morning, there's a, and that's not a knock on Leah as a person. I want you to make sure that's clear. The Bible, nor am I, am I saying, oh my gosh, he wanted someone beautiful and he got somebody who was so unattractive. And, and it's not a knock on Leah. It's us taking a reality check on what we actually pursue to increase ourselves, to build, that those things, the counsel of God is telling us that those things are actually decreasing you, lowering you. I mean, Jacob is rabid. He's dehumanized. Leah is more desperate. Each son is given a Hebrew name that gives us a picture of her brokenness. Verse 31 to 32, Reuben means I am seen. Now I'm visible. Now I'm somebody. And she wasn't. Verse 33, Simeon, now I'm heard. All my life I've been neglected and ignored. Now the Lord has heard that I am not loved, and yet she's still lost, unloved. Verse 34, Levi, now I'm going to be attached. The more literal translation, now my husband will join me will be attached to me. They're all lies. It's the, it's the promise in the beginning. But in the morning, there will always be Leah. Now, the gospel is an amazing thing because Jesus, God, our Father, calls us to come as we are, broken and lost and suffering. But God's presence, in his presence, we don't leave, ever leave as we are. We don't ever leave as we are. God is present. So what are the overall lessons about grace? First, God works through broken situations. What do you see here? You see polygamy. You see misogyny. You see conspiracy, adultery. It's awful. And people come to me and they say, but this is God's word, right? I mean, so many, I thought God didn't like these things. Why is it in here? Because it happened. One. It's true. Friends, if, you, if I want to make you a sales pitch, I'm going to hide all the crap, right? God is telling it like it is. He's telling it like it is. God's not trying to sell you 
with some sanitized story with after two hours you get a happy ending. Right? And this ain't little women. All right? This is real. This is an Oscar and Academy Award nominee here. No one's happy here. It's a terrible story. There's no happy ending. Right? Everyone's miserable. Is God condoning it? Of course not. Look at the misery. He's telling you, look at the misery. Look at the brokenness. Right? But number two, God is present in it. He's in the situation. He's not absent. He's active. He's working in these dark, broken situations in our lives. Trust his word. Trust. Don't just believe in Jesus. Believe Jesus. Trust his word. There are people in this room that are thinking about their own situations. They're saying, there's absolutely no good that can come from this situation in my life. Look, God's grace works best in broken situations. Look at at the cross of Jesus Christ. There are people standing around mocking Jesus and saying, there is no good that can come from this situation. The most broken situation where the most perfect person in the world is punished unjustly. What good could come from it? And did God stop it? No. But was he there? Yes. He worked through it to bring about the greatest salvation. And surely he's active in Jacob and active in Leah's situations. And he is active in their situations. He's broken. They chose it, right? Jacob chose this. Leah chose this. If he can be active in their lives and in their situations, he can be active in yours. Next, God works through broken cultures. It's easy for us to say, well, I mean, it's that culture, very primitive culture. We're beyond this, right? We're more educated today, right? We're more advanced today, right? We're more uh, liberated, right? And we don't care about looks anymore, do we? We're more advanced today, aren't we? We don't care about sex appeal anymore, do we? Right? People don't screw each other over, over money anymore, do they? Or over, over their girlfriends or boyfriends anymore. Do they do that anymore? They don't lie to each other anymore, right? We don't do that anymore. We're better than that, right? We don't manipulate people for love or for the things we want anymore. Do we do that anymore? The Bible is so relevant because the heart of a person, the nature, the problems of the world, what's broken with the world, the insecurities, this broken, it hasn't changed. All this technology, all this education, all this, all this social advancement, and yet we haven't changed. Look at Leah. In her culture, women had no rights. They had no power, no social standing. And so she's got no strength. And because of the way she looks, now the one asset that a woman's supposed to bring to the table is they're supposed to be good-looking and bear children, right? So she's lower. Because of, of where she is and who she she's lower. And she couldn't help it. That's how she was born, right? She's lower. She's ignored. But something happened between that third and fourth son because you got, now I'm seen, now I'm heard, now I'm attached, now I will praise the Lord? What happened between that third and fourth son? Judah literally means, now I will praise the Lord. The first three sons represent Leah's desperation and her emptiness and her desire to be loved and so her compulsion. But by the time you get to the fourth son, Leah is praising God. Leah is this weaker person, this lesser person. She somehow becomes strong. Leah is a slave to her society, a slave to her family, a slave to her culture, and now she's free. In a way, Leah 
And we know this because thousands of years later, we're still talking about her. I don't know anybody in this room, 6,000, you know, 5,000 years from now, we're going to be talking about you, okay? But she becomes the prototypical feminist in a sense because what she's saying is, I refuse to now give in to the societal pressures of my culture anymore. Now, I will praise the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That takes us to the third thing. God works in broken people. In broken people. Why is there polygamy? Why is there misogyny? Why is there exploitation here? Because if you think of the Bible, I mean, if you think of the church as just about role models, you will be disappointed because it's not. The Bible is not about good people telling you how to get God so that you can become great. Jacob resists God. Jacob hides from God. Jacob doesn't deserve God. Jacob isn't even seeking God. He doesn't appreciate God. He's not thankful for God, and yet he's chosen by God to receive the blessing, and he's saved by God. Scripture is filled with stories of sinful people, idolatrous people, broken people, and yet God never abandons them. He never casts them out. In fact, God uses those situations to shape them and transform them. Look at Jacob. Through his disappointments, God is slowly humbling him, reminding him, humbling him. He's waking up. Our cosmic disappointments are like an incubator an incubator where God is teaching you and counseling you. And if slowly making you, forcing you to open up your ears, counseling you and teaching you through your experiences to give you a real foundation on which godly character and godly trust and godly humility can be forged. Our cosmic disappointments are like an incubator where God is using these disappointments in in a way where he can teach you and counsel you and give you a real foundation on which godly character and godly trust and godly humility are forged. Fourth, God works through broken people. Why doesn't Jacob fight Laban? He needs Rachel, but he sees himself that God is using this circumstance to humble him. Why doesn't he walk away? He sees himself. It's easier, certainly much more fun. We all want God to use Rachel's in our lives. If we took a poll on what each of you pray for at night before you sleep, I guarantee you're not praying for Leah's in your life. You're praying for the blessings. You're praying for the beauty. You're praying for the building of your life. That's what you're praying for, right? That's what we want. We want God to use Rachel's in our lives, the beauties, the gifts, the trophies. But oftentimes, most often, he uses the Labans and the Leahs, the losses. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. Each of us here in this room have a Laban in our lives. We have Leahs in our lives leading you to see not their arrogance and brokenness, but your arrogance and brokenness. Each of us see, has a Laban and, a, and, and Leahs in our lives to see your pride and your, the lies that you are given to and your selfishness and your narcissistic tendencies. Over the years, as a pastor, you hear this all the time. People come to you and they say, man, I, I, I just, I haven't been in church for a while. They all start to say, I haven't been to church in a while. Church is full of hypocrites. I hate the church. You know, full of lies, full of fighting. I'm never going back. Listen, 
You've heard it before here. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for liars. That means the prerequisite is no one goes to a hospital, you know, because they like hanging out at the hospital, right? No one likes to go to the hospital to show how healthy they are. That's why it's weird that people come to the church to show us how good they are, right? The church is for liars. The church is for people who are desperate. The church is for broken people. That's why we come. That's why I need the church. That's why I'm here. Fifth, God is attracted to the Leahs, to the broken. What heals Leah? Verse 35, Judah means now I will praise the Lord. In ancient times, the word God is oftentimes referred to in the words Adonai or Elohim. You might have heard those words if you've grown up in a church. Adonai or Elohim, very generic words for God. But to a people that have been chosen by God, that he loves, that he has chosen to redeem and save, he gave a very specific word for them to use, to refer to him. You'll see it in your Bibles because it's usually found in all caps in the Old Testament. It's the word Lord, translated in the word Yahweh. That's where the word Judah comes from. It's only used by God's own people. And if you know what that means, I mean, it must have clicked for Leah. I am worthless. I am broken, neglected, overlooked, overshadowed, ignored. But God chose me to have children. She must have remembered God's promise to Jacob in chapter 27. I mean, they must have talked about it, that his descendants will become numerous. Well, how is he going to have descendants if he doesn't have sons? But she can have sons. She must have remembered the blessing and put two and two together. God chose Jacob, who was lesser. God was attracted to Jacob, who was lesser. Then God must be attracted to people who are lesser and broken and unattractive. He must be attracted to me. Leah's aloneness and ugliness and neglect became an incubator for her to see God's redemption, that God's redemption doesn't come despite her undesirable qualities, but through her undesirable qualities. You see that? The Lord sees me. The Lord hears me. The Lord must be attached to me. The Lord must be attracted to me. The Savior of the world is going to come through me. She must have trusted that. She must have seen that. And there, now, she's seeing the worth that she's been looking for all her life. It's not so much that it's maybe wrong for you in a sense. We were built, we have been assembled in a way where there is acceptance and approval in our lives. We lost it, you see? We lost it because of our sin. But it's not so much that looking for a husband was so wrong. She was just looking to her husband for the wrong thing something that only God can provide. She was looking to the wrong husband. The Lord is attracted to me. Through Judah, Leah becomes a foremother of Jesus Christ. Through Judah, Leah becomes a foremother of Jesus Christ. In other words, Judah is the seed. 
Judah's the seed. Rachel actually later has children. But Judah is the line of kings. And so King David is born in the line of Judah. King David was also ignored and neglected as a child. Almost a culmination of Jacob's life, almost a culmination of Leah's life, the neglect in their family, rolls up into David, but eventually comes to Jesus, who is also born in the line of Judah. God is attracted to the weak and the broken. And lastly then, God works through that brokenness. Friends, this is important. If your life is blown up or your life is blowing up, God chose to use the weak, the unattractive, and the ignored to bring salvation to the world. This is really important. If you've ever felt unattractive in your life, if you've ever been ignored, or you're the one that's overshadowed or overlooked or neglected by the world, God has chosen to bring salvation through the unattractive and the ignored and the weak. Leah's story is really a precursor, a seedling of the ultimate story of salvation because centuries later, Jesus Christ was born from the line of Judah. But Isaiah chapter 53 says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us, nothing in appearance that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus Christ had the ultimate pedigree. He was God's son. You can't get better than that from a status perspective. But he sacrifices his status. This is the most perfect, most beautiful person that ever existed. But he sacrifices his beauty. He sacrifices his sonship. What does that mean, those words? What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person that ever walked on the earth. He is the true Rachel, the ultimate Rachel. And yet he chose to be ignored and overlooked like Leah. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means is, now I am not seen. Now I am not heard. Now I am no longer attached. My God has left me. No longer attached to my God. It's the only place in the the Gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father. He was truly overlooked, truly ignored, truly forsaken, ultimately cast out. In fact, he wasn't even crucified in Jerusalem. He was cast outside of the city and crucified there. In other words, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate emptiness, the ultimate loneliness, the ultimate desperation, the ultimate ugliness of sin. And when God the Father departed from him, the ultimate cosmic disappointment, and he did that for you. That is is the ultimate cure for our emptiness and loneliness and brokenness. The cure for that need that you have to always be in a relationship, that need that you have to always have that one person in your life where you just feel loved and that you can love and that feeling is there. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Rachel, the ultimate beauty. All of us are spiritual layers. But Jesus Christ, the true Rachel, became the ultimate Leah so that we, the real Leahs of the world, can become the ultimate Rachels in God's eyes. You are seen. You are heard. God can be attached to you. God is attracted to the ugly and the broken and the weak. There is your worth. Every time you look at the cross, what do you see? Do you see a Savior God came down, the high king came down to save you, 
Is it personal to you? Because there is your validation. There is the acceptance. There is the, there is the worth that you've been looking for all your life. It's not the fact that looking for a husband is the wrong thing. You're looking for it in the wrong person, and you're looking for the wrong husband. You see that? Plunge yourself in the beauty of Christ, in the beauty of his amazing work for us on the cross, and you will find the true love that you need, the true love that you've been looking for all your life. What's the cure for idolatry? What's going to break that power? See Jesus on the cross for you. True beauty marred for you. Take your story of your loneliness and emptiness and desperation and ugliness and put it into that greater story of Jesus who became ugly for you so that you would become beautiful in God's eyes until it shapes you, until it remakes you. That is the source of true, a truly redeemed and renewed self-image. On the cross, Jesus, sin is labor. Jesus is on the cross and he's working and he's groaning and he's laboring for you. He says, I will do anything for you. I will do anything for you. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the author, he says, he did it for the joy set before him. So it's not like he's on the cross and he's like, you see, you miserable fools, what I had to go through. That's not what he's saying. He's on the cross. He's doing it gladly for you. He's reciting Psalm 22. He is singing on the cross for you. All that suffering seemed only like a little while because of his love for you. That's the key to your healing. That's the key to your renewal. Let the beauty of the ultimate Rachel the work of Jesus to become the ultimate Leah, cure your neediness so you will be free. You will be free. And that you will be able to live then as Jesus' precious bride. Let's pray together.